0: Last time we spoke about the first Arakan campaign, General Slim and Lieutenant General Erwin Noel were beginning to have a budding bromance, but Noel simply wanted to see other people and it led to disaster. All jokes aside, Noel's attempts to keep Slim away from the military campaign seems to have really hurt the war effort in the CBI theater. Slim's men and the Chinese forces who came to India received terrible treatment from their comrades. And on top of this, there was a political crisis brewing in India. Noel's operation sent men to Foul Point, where they got a taste of Japanese bunker defenses. Rather ironically, Wavell compared the failure at Foul Point to the fierce battle fought by the Australians and Americans over in Buna, Gona, stating this. It seems quite clear that we are facing a form of Buna and Gona. And today we will be returning to Green Hell and Starvation Island. This episode is the Fall of Buna. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube, and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where I am currently releasing a 7-part series on China's Warlord era. And now I'm going to let you know that because of a very large demand, a lot of people have been begging me for this one, I am going to be creating a Patreon account. The reason for this is I want to tackle certain subjects that I probably can't cover here on this podcast, or perhaps on the Fallen Rise of China podcast, or even on my own personal channel. Thus, if you have a specific subject in mind you want to hear me talk about in a podcast form, or perhaps in video, why don't you let me know by going over to the Kings and Generals Discord where you can find me, or just leave a comment on any of my YouTube videos, I always see them. December brought dramatic change for the Japanese strategic policy. The destruction of the convoys in November, accompanied by the aggressive attacks on Bunagona, led the combined fleet to favor the situation in New Guinea rather than that of Guadalcanal. The IGN had included the IGA in attempting to recapture Guadalcanal three times and each failed attempt drew attention to the IGN's inability to provision the IGA. This terrible situation is actually a large reason Guadalcanal received its notorious nickname Starvation Island amongst the IGA, obviously because of the lack of food, but also as a means of besmirching the IGN. In late November, Tsoiji came to the Imperial headquarters, giving a report that shocked the IJN officers. It was about starving men and those who had already died of starvation. Then the IJA operations staff received a report on November 26th from Major Ruzo Sujima on the abysmal strength of the Japanese forces on Guadalcanal. Despite all the ill tidings, the view from the Imperial HQ remained that Japan would still triumph over snatching back. Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal had honestly become more than just an island airfield. The only way I can really describe it to those who know their World War II history, it was basically like Japan's Stalingrad at this point. It represented an enormous amount of prestige. It was the first real allied counterattack, and it earned the zeal of the IJA to be stamped out. There was also the fear that Extricating over 30,000 men from the island might be more costly than pressing more attacks. A rather dark aspect to think about. One a lot of commanders did think about. But as the first week of December rolled around, the feasibility of maintaining the campaign was waning. In October, the Imperial HQ had pledged to the Japanese government to allocate 220,000 tons of shipping back to supporting the Japanese fledging war economy given the Solomons had been secured. But they weren't. Remember in previous episodes my metaphor of a dying person eating their limbs to survive? Well, the shipping situation for the war front was killing the Japanese war economy. After the October failures, Imperial HQ in November requested an additional 620,000 tons of shipping after losing 70,000 tons worth. In response, a cabinet meeting on November the 20th sanctioned another 290,000 tons to the IGA and the IGN. There was a real difference of perspective between the military and the government. The government was focused on Japan's long term war effort, whereupon shipping was pivotal. Hideki Tojo, on November the 21st, lectured at an Imperial HQ's meeting that Japan's minimum steel production requirements for 1943 were around 3.5 million tons and the diversion of 290,000 tons of shipping would reduce the output to about 3 million tons. If the government had agreed to the full amount, Japan's steel production for 1943 would have fallen to an abysmal 2 million tons. Despite Tojo's warnings, on December 5th the IGA again demanded more shipping, another 165,000. And the government coughed up 85,000. The IGA regarded the granting of half of their demands to mean they needed to abandon the Solomon operations. The following night, General Tanaka confronted Tojo face-to-face in a heated argument over getting the rest of the shipping. And, well, I guess Tanaka went overboard because he was sacked as a result. But Tojo did authorize an additional 115,000 tons of shipping, so a rather bizarre compromise, I would say. Yet, as the shipping wars was raging on, there was something else going on in secret. Secret discussions were being made in both Rabaul and in Tokyo over the reality of the matter. On December the 11th, Commander Yuji Yamamoto went to Tokyo with a report from Rabaul. He reported the 11th Air Fleet to be at about half its strength since the beginning of the war, and that no one at the 8th Fleet, 8th Area Army, nor the 17th Army, held any confidence in the current operations. Oof. He noted the feeling was that a withdrawal from both Guadalcanal and the Bunagona Front might cost destroyers. The combined fleet simply could not afford. The report was a somber one, drawing attention to the real necessity for a withdrawal. On December the 12th, the Imperial HQ IGA Section ordered the 8th Area Army to deploy the 51st Division to New Guinea rather than Guadalcanal. Although the operations on Guadalcanal remained the official goal, in reality, Tokyo was beginning to signal withdrawing. Backroom discussions on the logistics of a withdrawal began in utter secrecy. The IGN part of the Imperial HQ likewise had come to an agreement. Guadalcanal was a lost cause, and it had to be abandoned. By December the 14th, Commander Watanabe of the Combined Fleet proposed a joint deliberation of the 8th Area Army on what to do after the abandonment of Guadalcanal. This was done while the 8th Area Army was still under orders to recapture Guadalcanal. On December the 17th, General Tanaka was officially replaced by Major General Kitsuyuji Ayabe as the Chief of Operations and Colonel Joichiro Sanada, relieved Tanaka's deputy, General Hattori. Sanada's first orders were to discuss future plans with the 8th Area Army on Rabaul, where he was informed that the local wargaming predicted the Allied air power would destroy any reinforcement convoy that even tried to get near Guadalcanal at this point. Thus Admiral Kuzaka said bluntly, the combined fleet could not afford to lose any more destroyers because it would threaten the security of the home islands, and he urged the strategic priority to be shifted dramatically over to New Guinea. Another staff officer named Michio Keto privately met with Zanada and told him, given the abysmal situation with the navy, any attempt to retrieve forces on Gualcanal was pretty much impossible. General Imamura also spoke frankly with Sanada, stating any discussion of withdrawal had to be done in utter secrecy, but whatever might occur, he would not abandon the men on Guadalcanal and would do everything possible to evacuate as many of them as he could. Imamura laid a grave warning that if any talk of withdrawal was leaked to the men on Guadalcanal, they almost certainly would kill themselves. Sanada made a return trip to Tokyo to report his findings, and as you can imagine, when it came to Guadalcanal, he recommended not commencing any more attacks, indicating both the navy and the army had no more confidence in such operations. He pointed out the Guadalcanal operation was distracting their New Guinea operations, resulting in the later collapsing, and that they really needed to shift focus over there. He also urged for the immediate withdrawal of Guadalcanal rather than trying to hold out any longer. To Sanada's great surprise, his report and the recommendations were met with absolutely no objections. In fact, General Sugiyama looked relieved to hear the report. Sanada gave a similar report to the IGN section and they basically told him they offered zero chance of successfully evacuating the boys on Guadalcanal. So finally, on December the 26th, everyone was in official agreement to withdraw from Guadalcanal. And for the next two days, staff officers drafted all the plans. Two major conflicts emerged during the planning sessions. Number one, how the hell to conduct a withdrawal from Guadalcanal? And number two, where would they set up a new defensive line? For the withdrawal, the IGA managed to coerce the IGN to agree to utilize the maximum feasible number of warships for the evacuation, which would include destroyers rather than barges and smaller crafts. As for the new defensive line, the IGA recommended abandoning everything below the northern Solomon islands, but the IGN countered this by insisting on protecting the mid-Solomons to keep the allied aircraft out of the range of Rabaul. They both eventually reached a compromise. The IGN would take responsibility for the defense of the New Georgia-Santa Isabel area, and the IJ would take responsibility for holding the Northern Solomons. This agreement was presented to Emperor Hirohito by General Sugiyama and Admiral Nagano, who told him the Imperial HQ wanted to withdraw from Guadalcanal, and the proposed date for finishing the plans was set for January the 4th. Emperor Hirohito responded that he wanted to be informed of the plans for the withdrawal, and what would be the next step in the overall war plans to bring the war to an end. And let us not forget, this is the emperor who performed little decision making during all of this war, wink wink. It's just a callback to some of the very first episodes I did, just pointing out that the overall narrative that Emperor Hirohito was in fact some kind of hostage and not making decisions during the pacific war is a complete fabrication. At some point I would very much like to do a special episode dedicated simply to all the major decisions Emperor Hirohito did during the war and honestly just before the war because those are much more important. To give you an example, the uh, colloquially known Rape of Nanking was something he definitely had a hand in. But yet again, because of the format of how we've done the YouTube episodes and this podcast series being week by week, I can only do so many episodes, and thus, this is why I'm making a Patreon account. Because I would very much like to tackle kind of obscure subjects and maybe do some more free talking. What I mean when I say free talking is uh, a large number of you, especially the Kings and Generals fans over in the Discord, uh, you have a lot of questions revolving around alternate history. For example, I was asked, uh, well, what if the Japanese attacked Russia instead? Or what if Pearl Harbor wasn't attacked or it went differently? I love doing research to try and really look at how those outcomes would occur. And uh, on my personal channel, I actually tackle those questions specifically. Very good episodes, and I did a discussion with uh, some friends of mine, Eric and Ian. But there has been a large demand for live uh, shows, for you to be able to talk to me one-on-one and, you know, ask me questions on the spot. And that I would love to do, because honestly, I I just love talking about the Pacific War. I mean, I'm a nerd. So uh, on the Patreon, I might do something like that. If you're interested, please let me know. So on December the 31st, Sugiyama and Nagano showed Emperor Hirohito the war plans, and he approved them. Emperor Hirohito had an imperial script made for when Guadalcanal was supposed to be recaptured, but was forced to can it for a new rescript that acknowledged the heroic sacrifices of his soldiers and sailors in the battle for Guadalcanal. On January the 3rd, a delegation from the Imperial General HQ sent a massive wave of new orders to truck to the staff officers of the Southeast Area Fleet, the 8th Area Army, and the Combined Fleet. Admiral Yamamoto was advised to find specific points in the Solomons, New Guinea, and a withdrawal point specifically on Guadalcanal. The IGA was going to manage the defense of the northern Solomons, which included Shortland, Bougainville, and Buka, while the IGN would have the middle Solomons, meaning New Georgia and Santa Isabel. For the New Guinea reinforcements, they would be sent to Ley and Salamaua, Madang and Wawak, while for the case of the Buna Garrison, it was simply listed as quote, depending upon the situation. The IGA's air power would reign over New Guinea, while the IGNs would reign over the Solomons and assist in New Guinea when they could. Thus, Operation KE came to be the code name for the evacuation of Guadalcanal, and it was set for late January and possibly early February. But stating all of this, exciting back and forth military meetings debacle and secrecy, we now have to venture back to green hell. Last time when we were speaking about the Buna Front, things were a hellscape for the Japanese. The diary of one corporal, Okajima held passages on December the 1st, complaining his unit had been waiting for reinforcements for the past four days. He also had this to write, a very harrowing passage. Somebody ate my whole day's rice ration, and three other rations were stolen. The provisional situation was abysmal. The heat was unbearable, and the morale was all but faded. Lance Corporal Uchiyama in the Eastern Sector noted this in his diary. We are continuously short of rations. We eat only once a day, and it's impossible to walk because of the lack of strength. SUFFERING FROM AN ATTACK OF DIARRHEA On December the 10th, 30 planes dropped provisions and ammunition, but this could not be distributed to all the troops. It merely went to who was ever closest to the drops. Over on the other side, General Eichelberger had decided to wait for tanks and fresh troops coming up from Milna Bay before making another offensive. By December the 15th, he had 8 M3 General Stuart tanks of the Australian 2 and 6 Regiment that had landed at Oro Bay. Alongside this, he had some 105mm howitzers which were firing delayed fuse shells, something the Japanese nicknamed earthquake bombs, because they would lodge into the earth before exploding, causing reverberations all throughout the bunker walls. Two American flamethrowers were also brought up that were used to burn out a large Japanese bunker killing a crew of four men. This prompted Yasuda to send 100 men across the estuary island of Musita to relieve the village. They stormed the Americans yelling and screaming as they did, but they were repelled by heavy motor and machine gun fire. The position in the village was simply untenable, and by December the 13th the defenders were down to just 100 men with their supply line having been cut for several days. The Urbana force brought up fresh troops to perform a major offensive, but the Japanese saw this and they evacuated the village, fleeing along the coast to Girawa. On the night of December the 17th, seven of the newly arrived eight Stuart tanks had driven up the coast towards Cape Endeador. Motor barrages were used to mask their movement and the tanks would be the spearhead that broke the Japanese defensive lines in front of the airstrips. The Japanese outer camp was caught by complete surprise when the tanks emerged within just a few meters of their bunkers. Many defenders leapt like crazy men atop the tanks, trying to use Molotov cocktails to kill their inhabitants. In just an hour of combat, the Australian and Americans overran them. The Allied forces met stiff resistance when they got 500 meters past Cape and Dander. At this point the Allies held control over the Duropa plantation and had mopped up the remaining defenders in the area. Yamamoto ordered a fighting withdrawal back to the government station where the Buna Garrison's HQ was. Meanwhile the push towards the airstrip in the eastern sector proved much more difficult than the drive up the coast. Two tanks at the spear point were stopped because of damage to their turrets, but the other tanks were being brought over from the coast to compensate for this. After two hours of bitter fighting, the allied infantry and tanks overcame 20 blockhouses made of concrete and steel. The Japanese pulled back closer to the new strip where bunkers and a wooden bridge went over the Simimi creek. The losses for the Japanese were terrible, but also equally so for the allied forces. It's estimated one out of three of the Australians were killed or wounded for their efforts, and the Allied commanders quickly realized, upon seeing the defensive works, that without the tanks, they could not have taken them. Tanks were crucial. After a single day of rest, the tanks and infantry resumed their onslaught, quickly overrunning Japanese positions east of Strip Point, culminating in an entire day of firefighting. The terrain was quite swampy past Strip Point leaving the 14-ton tanks getting bogged down everywhere. Yamamoto withdrew his forces across the Tsumimi Creek Bridge and quickly set up a defensive point on the other side to thwart the Allied forces from doing the same. With communication severed from the garrison HQ, Yamamoto could no longer direct all of his men properly, and now many would have to act on their own. Defensive emplacements had been set up on an island at the mouth of the Sememi Creek and on the west bank of the creek, making it a nightmare for any advances to try and wade across the shallow parts of the creek. While the defenses were being created, the Japanese also blew up parts of the bridge, forcing a bottleneck into their firing area. The American engineers tried to repair the bridge under a smokescreen, but the Japanese made it impossible work. The water was deep at the creek mouth with a lot of thick, boggy murk. The Samemi was full of mud, broken lumber, and honestly quite a lot of rats. The Australians tried to wad through it, and eventually the men navigated a path north of the bridge leading them south of the Japanese defenses. The Japanese realized they were at risk of encirclement, and most of the 229th regiment were forced to pull back further west using a network of fire trenches and connected bunkers going all the way up to the old strip. They had mountain guns and cannon support alongside two anti-aircraft guns, all very well camouflaged. The American engineers never gave up on repairing the bridge, and their efforts proved fruitful, allowing four tanks to move across. The American infantry moved up on the southern edge of the Old Strip while the Australians swung around the northern side. By Christmas Eve, the tanks joined in coming across the bridge, and by late morning, the Japanese anti-aircraft guns began to open fire on them. The Allies had assumed the Japanese anti-aircraft guns were out of ammunition, as they hadn't fired for days, but this was only a ruse. The anti-aircraft guns managed to take out two tanks and turned another over in a shell hole. The remaining tanks held back until the anti-aircraft fire stopped. The Japanese defensive positions were scattered across the Old Strip, behind abandoned zero-fighters and transport aircraft. The Allied troops tried to breach the Japanese lines for over two days without any success, but then they found a way through an adjacent swamp to hit the two anti-aircraft guns. Close combat won the day for the Allies as they broke through the rear of the eastern sector's defense. The Japanese used smokescreens to withdraw towards the Garopa Plantation, and the rearguard fought to the very bitter end. They rushed the Allied infantry with swords and bayonets and grenades, and they were all cut down to pieces by machine gun fire. The Allies noted many of the Japanese were carrying M1s, and they wore American apparel like helmets or uniforms they had obviously acquired in the early parts of the campaign. By 4 a.m. on December the 29th, 20 of Yamamoto's men managed to infiltrate a U.S. company command post, attacking it with bayonets and grenades. They used the age-old ploy of screaming out, Medic! to get the American infantry to rush out, and in the scramble, several Americans were bayoneted in their sleep or in hand-to-hand fighting. 15 Americans were killed and 12 were wounded before they managed to fight off the infiltrators. This seemed to be the final gesture from an enemy who were outnumbered and on their very last legs. Lance Corporal Ichiyama wrote this in his diary following a motor and aerial bombardment in late December, nine days before what would be his final entry. We now only wait for the final moments to come. Every day, one or two comrades are killed. I am disgusted with myself only thinking when my end will come. As a Lance Corporal, I must encourage the soldiers, saying to the subordinates that war has just begun, fight to the end. By December the 20th, Ichiyama's desperation turned practically elegatic. At dawn, enemy bombed the hell out of us. Observe only the sky with bitter regrettable tears rolling down filled my stomach with dried bread and waited for my end to come. Oh, remaining comrades, I shall depend on you for my revenge. The next day, Ichiyama's tone became much darker. Oh, friendly troops, are you going to let us die like rats in a hole? Enemy bombing fiercely, and our end is coming nearer And nearer. The day after that entry, Ichiyama and his comrades found out the rumors about reinforcements were untrue. By the 22nd of December, after 35 days of constant fighting, Ichiyama had resigned to die. No thoughts of returning home alive. Want to die like a soldier and go to the Yasukuni Shrine full moon shining through the trees in the jungle hearing the cries of the birds and insects the breeze blowing gently and peacefully good news friendly troops are near in the rear and friendly planes will fly tomorrow how far is this true and how far an unfounded rumor whatever it is it is happy news Ichiyawa's very last entry was on the 24th of December, and it simply stated, Enemy firing in front of us. The defenses of the outer camp and the eastern sector pulled back to the coastal strip between Garopa Point and the mouth of the Sememi Creek. By December the 29th, tanks were rolling with infantry behind them to hit the first line of bunkers. The Japanese quickly ran to their second line of bunkers upon seeing this, as the tanks kept firing into the first line of bunkers. Then upon realizing that they were empty, they proceeded to go towards the second line, but their infantry were too slow to keep up the pace. The Japanese in the second line took advantage of the situation upon realizing it, and they rushed up to take back their position in the first line, hitting the infantry hard, who didn't have the tanks to hide behind. It was a short-lived victory for the Japanese, as three days later, six tanks alongside their American and Australian infantry cut through the Jaropa plantation and started cleaning out the beach down to the Simemé mouth. The Australians had been improvising a new bombing technique using a mills bomb attached to a can of ammonal explosive which they would toss into bunkers from the side. The explosion rocked the inside of the bunkers, stunning the inhabitants, then a can of Avgas was tossed in and ignited by tracers, burning to death those inside. It was a very nasty way to go. By January the 2nd, the Japanese defensive emplacements on the island at the Samemi Creek mouth were overrun, and tanks rolled over the Garopa Point. The Warren force was poised to finally connect with the Urbana force, which had been working its way from the other end of the Buna defenses. The Urbana Force had run through the gauntlet known as the Triangle, a well-fortified jungle-covered tongue of land surrounded by swamp. It cost them many men, but after performing some faint assaults, the Urbana Force managed to create a bridgehead north of the Triangle, isolating its defenders. This was occurring while the American troops were assaulting Muzita Island, forcing Captain Usada to withdraw his marines from the island to the Buna mission. The American seizure of Musada Island let them set up artillery upon it to begin bombarding the Buna mission. Under artillery cover, forces stormed the government's gardens, and by Christmas Day, two American companies had made it through the gardens. The two companies took the Japanese defenders by the rear, isolating them, then after three days of carnage, the Urbana force established a corridor to the two American companies. Yasuda knew the triangle was compromised, and he ordered a general retreat. Meanwhile, General Adachi had sent orders to General Yamagata over at his HQ in Danawatu on the other side of Gona that they needed to relocate to Giroa by sea, but that he also had to rescue the Buna garrison while doing so. Colonel Yazua of the 41st Regiment at Giroa was given the task of leading the relief party by sea. Unaware, the Buna defense was on the very brink of complete collapse. Two swimmers braved the waters, departing the South Seas Force HQ at Gurawha, and one would get to Buna alive with the message that there was no more fuel for any barges to come to Buna. Yazawa's relief party would thus have to come by land. Marching along the coast and the garrison likewise would have to perform a breakout through enemy lines. It would only be when the swimmer returned on December the 30th that Giroa learnt of the critical situation that was occurring at Buna. The swimmer reported this. Numbers are down to around 250 and food is scarce. They will be able to hold out for only a short time longer. Yasuda telegraphed the 8th Fleet HQ in Rabal on December the 28th, telling them the garrison was gradually falling apart despite multiple counterattacks. His message finished off with this All the men, whether naval personnel or laborer, have given all that they could be asked of them. Our gratitude to our commanders and the support of the Navy, Air, and Surface Forces is boundless. We pray for prosperity of our imperial land far away, and for the lasting success in battle for all. The Allied forces launched a three-front attack on the Buna Garrison HQ. On January the 1st, a thrust came up from the government gardens, southeast of the mission, and tanks pushed up from Garopa Point. The defenders resisted, but they could not hope to push the enemy back. By nightfall, a general withdrawal was decided upon. Around 80 army and naval staff from the garrison HQ, half wounded, made a break for the beached landing craft. They carried heavy packs of food, medicine and personal items, and they were mowed down by Allied machine gun fire. Ten returned to the bunkers to fight out the last final hours of the Buna garrison. Yasudo ordered and signed Suzuki of the Yokosuka SNLF force to try and swim towards Gurua with a final report. Suzuki set out at 2.30am and he managed to reach Gurua by sunrise. Lieutenant Nakahashi was on the beach at Gurua that very morning when he saw that man come out from the ocean. And he noted in his diary, A large naval man with a headband and a sword strapped to his back had swum to them. This man brought news that Buna had fallen. And the last words of Yasuda read, It is deeply regrettable that we have not been able to hold out for the arrival of the relief party. Despite the service rivalry, Captain Yasuda and Colonel Yamamoto held each other in high regard. The 18th Army had ordered a withdrawal from Buna, but Yamamoto had defied the order. He and his men remained with Yasuda and his men, who had not received a similar order to withdraw. By the time the commander of the southeastern fleet, Vice Admiral Kazaka, sent the order to withdraw from Giroa, Yamamoto had received new orders to remain at Buna until Yazawa's relief party arrived. Thus Yasuda then chose to ignore his commander's instructions. The two forces held off in their bunkers, and Yasuda made the joke, I hope we all survive tonight. Because if we die, our families will never be able to celebrate New Year's Day. To which Yamamoto replied, I wish I could eat papaya before I die here. By sunrise, the Japanese were all along the beach clinging to boxes and logs and a few surviving small boats. A lot of guys simply swam for their lives. Artillery and machine guns were brought up the beach to fire upon them, as were Mitchells, Weiraways, and Aracobras. During the morning, Yasuda charged out of the bunker with 10 men holding swords and bayonets reportedly screaming, Long live the Emperor and the Empire of Japan! But the only words the allied forces would recognize before shooting these men down was simply Banzai. Soon after this, Yamamoto emerged with his deputy commander standing in front of the enemy, where he shouted at them. Now you are crowing over us. You wasted a great deal of equipment and are about to overpower us. Now I will show you how Japanese soldiers end their lives. Shoot me. Yazawa finally left Giroa on the evening of the 2nd, with 250 men of the 170th Regiment, and they advanced by foot towards Buna. His troops pushed back a small US force near Tarakina, 2 kilometers from Buna, where he found a point to pick up survivors from the Buna garrison, who had swam for their lives. A total of 370 men, 180 army and 190 navy were taken back to Giroa, the last remaining beachhead in the Japanese campaign to capture Port Moresby. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast, Over at the Age of Conquest the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War channel over at YouTube, where I am now just releasing a seven-part series on China's Warlord era. And if there is specific subjects you want to hear about that I can't cover here, or perhaps even on the Fall and Rise of China podcast, Please let me know by commenting on my personal channel over at YouTube, or you can find me at the Kings and Generals Discord server. I plan on tackling all the subjects you want to hear about in a Patreon account I am making soon. Both the IGA and the IGN painfully came to the conclusion that Guadalcanal was a lost cause, and they opted to focus instead on New Guinea. But it may be far too late, for the collapse of Buna and Gona was complete, and now Giroa remained the last beachhead for the failed Port Moresby campaign.